If you're like me growing up, I'm sure when you think about large family get-togethers, family reunions, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Mother's Day, Father's Day get-togethers, you have memories as a child of sitting at what is called the kids' table. Now, the kids' table is normally off to the side somewhere, usually a card table with some makeshift chairs, stools, whatever you could find for kids to sit around a table and just kind of be off to themselves and eat together. It's really a, a status of inferiority that came with sitting at the kids' table. As the adults, they had adult conversation or uh, watched football in the other room. You were at the kids' table and you had to be quiet and you had to eat your food and be in there and, until you were given permission to leave the kids' table. At least that's the way it happened at my family get-togethers with my family. And we would always go to my great-grandmother's house on Christmas Eve and Thanksgiving, Mother's Day. And... We called my great-grandmother this. Her, her name, I guess you would call it a nickname, but this is all she was ever known by in her small town. She was called, and we called her Mama Hick. Mama Hick, I said it, Mama Hick, I'm getting that out. Now, that was not a description of her, but it was. And that's not how she got the name. She was kind of the local school's lunch lady for many years, many, many years. And her name was Mrs. Hickman. And students over time just kind of shortened her name to Mama Hick. And that's what everybody in the small town called her. Now, I said it wasn't a description of her, but it was. Because Mama Hick also lived in a house with no running water. And this is where we would always go for our family get-togethers, to Mama Hick's house. And Mama Hick had the kids table in her bedroom this was in her bedroom and in mama hick's bedroom oh i said she had no running water which one of the uh funniest moments was danae's when danae first visited mama hick's house this little orlando floridian and she looked at me and said where's the bathroom and i said that's an interesting question there's a box over there with a bucket in it. Or you can just forget about that question for a while. But Mama Hick put the kids' table at all the get-togethers in her room, and there is her wash tub. And that's where she took a bath, by the way. And then there's a homemade porta potty that was in there for the winter. And this is where the kids' table is. And I just thought about this. Do you, do you realize how disgusting and humiliating that is? Do you, do you realize how ridiculous that is? There was also, I was thinking about this yesterday, this old antique piano looking or a piano in the room. And it was just big and bulky. And when you opened it up to play it, the, 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 whatever that is on top of the keys was so heavy. Kids would get in there and play on it. And it was always falling on their hands and breaking fingers of my cousins. This happened around the kids table often, but I'll never forget one Christmas when it dawned on me 
that I no longer want to be at the kids' table. Because I had a relative that came in who needed to use the facilities. And he said, y'all just going to have to give me a minute. And I thought, I'm about to give the kids' table not just a minute, but the rest of my life. Because I'm never coming back in this room ever again. And I will never sit at the kids' table in Mama Hicks' bedroom ever, ever again. When we come to our text here, we're beginning to see the disciples are ready to move from the kids' table to the grown-up table. To go to the next status that they think is the kingdom of God. At this time, they are walking around with Jesus alone. Jesus has left the crowds. He, he, he's, he doesn't want to be seen by the crowds. It's just him and his disciples, and he's teaching them about the kingdom and what the kingdom's going to look like. And yet, in their minds, when he says kingdom, and when, he, when he's preparing them to go to Jerusalem, where he keeps telling them he's going to die, in their minds, they keep seeing victory parades. In their minds, as he talks about, I'm going to Jerusalem to set up my kingdom, they are thinking about big banquet tables where they are seated at the front of everyone. And they are to the right and left of Jesus, the new king of Jerusalem. That's what's going through their minds. They think their status is going to move from itinerant backwood preachers to the chief seats, from the kids' table to the adult room. That's what's going through their mind. But Jesus is at pains to tell them, no, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. The way forward is not that your status in the world is going to change. As a matter of fact, your status is only going to get worse from here forward. You think you're moving to first? No, we're moving to last place. Because I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed on a cross. And you better prepare yourself for that. You better prepare yourself for what's coming. The way forward is to the back and is to die and is to become unnoticed little silly kids. Notice verse 30 as he calls his disciples to this. It says they went from there and passed through Galilee. They're just trekking around the Galilean Sea. He's teaching them privately as they head to Jerusalem. And he did not want anyone to know. He doesn't want anybody to see them. He is preparing his disciples, the twelve, who will take the gospel to the ends of the earth about what is about to happen. And notice what he's teaching them. Verse 31. He was saying to them, the Son of Man. Now remember, that is a title from the Old Testament that refers to God's King who will rule and reign on the earth. Rule and reign over men and God's people on behalf of God. But notice what's going to happen. The Son of Man, God's King, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. Now, there's a play on words here. Literally, the King of Men will be killed by men. And they're to fill that scandal. They're to take it in. 
They're to see the irony in that. They're to see the sin in that. They're to see the wickedness in that. And it says they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, this is something that just doesn't make sense to them. Resurrection doesn't make sense to them because a king dying doesn't make sense to them. They can't process it. And so look at verse 30. It says, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. It seems at this point, Jesus is constantly talking about this and they keep trying to make sense of it. And they've just gotten to a point where why, why are we even going to ask him? He's going to tell us to take up our cross to deny ourselves. like don't even bring that up anymore. But they can't fathom Jesus dying. They're going to set up shop in Jerusalem and rule. And a crucified Messiah makes no sense to them. This is like saying this guy's a godly pedophile. It's an oxymoron. The two don't go together. Messiahs aren't killed. They're not crucified. They save the day. They rule and reign. They can't process it. But here, Jesus is setting the path to greatness through suffering. He's describing to them what it means to be great, and it only happens through suffering. Now think about this. The plan for the most glorious person in the world, his plan, centerpiece of the most glorious person, the greatest person, is to suffer the most. That's the plan for Jesus. If anyone didn't deserve to suffer, it would be Jesus. But that's his plan. That's God's plan for his king. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. They come back to their home base. And he was in the house. And he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Here Jesus arrives back at what we believe to be Peter's home. was full of friends and family. Eventually there was a church planted in this house. And this is where so often he privately teaches his disciples. Let's come back. Come in, guys. Let's debrief. First of all, what have y'all been talking about? It seems as along the way, as Jesus is preparing them for the cross and resurrection, he turns back and he sees murmuring. He even sees intense conversation and arguments between them. And it seems as though... There is a discussion that has become central to all of their conversations. And Jesus knows what it is, but he wants to bring it forward before the group. He says, what were you discussing as we were walking? And notice that they kept silent. And their silence is a confession. It reveals everything that Jesus already knows, their audacious pride. Notice what they were discussing. For on the way, they had argued with one another. They had debated. They had gone back and forth with one another about who was the greatest. Now think about the irony there. Jesus, I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to be betrayed by men. And the disciples are walking behind him. I think I'm the greatest. I love Jesus the most. When we get to Jerusalem, I will probably be seated at his right hand. I will probably give him the position of power. As their Savior is talking about becoming powerless. 
They are arguing about who will get the most power. Do you see the scandal? Do you see the irony? And this happens over and over with the disciples. They don't want to surrender in their minds. They don't even want to ask about it. They don't even want to think about it. They don't even want to bring it up. They don't want to surrender their greatness to a cross. Their vision for what it means to be great. They don't want to think about a cross. And this happens over and over. As Jesus is talking about the cross... This happens at least three times in Mark. I'm going to go and die. And Peter says, no, God forbid. That ain't going to happen. And then here, I'm going to go die. Which one of us is the greatest? And then we're going to see in just a few weeks, I'm going to go die. And James and John's mom is asking, can my boys sit at your right and left? They don't even see the cross. They don't even get it. They don't want to surrender their vision of greatness to a cross. And this is the scandal in the shadow of the cross. They are competing for greatness. The cross is there. It's being spoken of. It's being talked about. And yet they're competing for who's great. And it's the same thing that goes on in churches. The cross is there. But in the shadow of the cross, we compete for greatness. And it's the scandal. It's a plague on the church. When we ignore the cross, we will compete for greatness. Ministry that ignores the cross will become a competition for who is the greatest. Let me maneuver so folks can see how smart I am, how organized I am, what a great leader I am. All in the shadow of a crucified Messiah. Do you see how ironic and scandalous that is? See how prideful that is? Where we ignore the cross, we will even begin to use the cross for our greatness. How many of us are tempted to use Jesus to show off our wisdom? To use the things of God so people know how smart we are. How often in our fellowship, in the shadow of the cross, are we, well, actually, well, actually, I read the Piper article. Well, actually, I saw the Nine Marks video. Well, actually, I have a friend who said this. Well, actually, well, actually, well, actually, even in the shadow of a king who is beaten like an abused animal, we will stand around and talk about which one of us is the greatest. We will use the cross for our greatness. If I assume the cross in my song, I will use the song to be great. If I assume the cross in my sermon, I will use the sermon to be great. This is why we cannot assume the cross as a church. It... it, It's not just a decoration or a mascot here. It has got to be the center of everything we do. The cross is our boast. The cross is our only hope. And it's the only thing that will temper your vision for greatness. If you're not boasting in the cross, you will walk around like you're somebody. But... If you understand the cross and the cross is your boast, you realize first and foremost, everything that my desire for greatness is what led Jesus to the cross. 
I want it to be king and Jesus had to die for that sin. That's not very great. My greatness was dressed up and humiliated and mocked as a fake king between two criminals. That's what my greatness is. That's what my greatness caused. As Jesus is, is, is endures the blowtorch of God's wrath for my greatness. I have nothing to claim that is great. The only thing I can cry, claim that is great is that I have been crucified with Christ. He is my greatness. The cross is my boast. And we have to fight for whether it's security or sermons or parking or songs or whatever we're doing around here. It has to be a boast in the cross. Or we will stand around and talk about how great we are. Even if it's great at cleaning toilets. I am the greatest toilet cleaner. And let me show you how to do it. We would, if we ignore the cross, that's who we're going to be no matter what we're doing. The most insignificant task to the most significant task. We can't, like the disciples, ignore the cross. And so Jesus begins to explain this to them. What does this look like? Verse 35, he set them down. He says, guys, you still don't get it. Everybody in. Just the twelve, everybody else out. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, the greatest... He must be last of all and a servant of all. Here's a family meeting between the disciples and Jesus. And we got to get something straight. You still don't get it. Whoever's going to lead, whoever's going to be up front, whoever's going to be honored, they got to go to the back. They got to be the one who's not seen and not heard. And then he describes what that looked like. Notice he says they've got to become the servant of all. And so the picture of greatness that Jesus gives his disciples is one of a slave. Someone with no rights. Someone who is, their life is given over to the most menial task. Washing feet. Taking out the sewage water. Cleaning the wash tubs. You got to go to the back of the line and be willing to serve everybody else. That's what's great. That's who's going to be the greatest among you. Is the person who who is first, you want to be first? Will you go to the back of the line? And once you get to the back of the line, here's the deal. There's nobody behind you to serve you. You're at the back of the line. And so your responsibility is to serve everybody else. That's who you got to be if you want to be great. The servant of all at the very back, at the end of the line. And here Jesus, Jesus's way of greatness is so counterintuitive against every one of our deepest desires. The disciples are thinking about a big banquet and they're at the front and they're praised for who they are. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Now, the greatest at the banquet will be the one walking around washing feet not having anything to eat and cleaning crumbs out of everybody's beard. That's who will be the greatest. That's how you become great. Now, one of the things that's not often seen in this verse is Jesus is actually teaching his disciples they can't be the greatest. That's what he's You can't be the greatest. He's teaching his disciples you can't be the great king. You can't be the great savior. You can't be great and you don't need to be great. 
Kingdom greatness means I understand I'm not Jesus. Jesus is telling them here, I'm first. You can't be first. There's only one who was first, who was king of glory, king of power, had all authority. And he was preeminent. And the Bible tells us he was first. And what did he do? He humbled himself and became a man. He humbled himself and became a servant. He was cursed on the cross. There's only one who's gone from first to last. And what does Philippians chapter 2 tell us about Jesus? He went from heaven to a grave, and now God has highly exalted him, and he's first again. There's only one Jesus. Jesus is standing before them and saying, you can't be great. I'm the one who will go first to last, and I'm the one who will be exalted as first. You can't be king. And by the way, he's telling them, you don't need to be king. You don't need to be savior. Y'all are asking for greatness. You don't understand what that means. To put on the crown is to take on the cross. And there is only one king who can do that to save you. And it's me. You can't take on the role of greatness. You can't be that king. You can't be that savior. You see, one of the things we've got to understand is the desire to be first is a desire to be Jesus. And you can't be Jesus. You can't be king and you can't be savior. You can't and you don't need to be. You, you can't be king and you don't need to be savior. And here's the reality. So, so you're thinking, so I have to follow Jesus. He says, if I want to be great, I've got to go back and serve everyone. So what does that look like? If I'm going to follow his pattern, how do I think about it? Well, if Jesus humbled himself and he became last to serve me like a slave, to die for my sin on the cross, then what do I do? How do I become last? Well, I stop trying to be first and I get to the back of the pack like Jesus and I push everybody to Jesus who is first. You get up there and you see Jesus. You don't need to see me. I'm okay with getting to the back of the pack and pushing you to the one who is first, to the only one who deserves to be first, to the only one who can be king, to the only one who can be savior. I'm going to the back and pushing you to Jesus. One of the things he's teaching his disciples here is it is exhausting to be the greatest when we try to be the greatest. And some of you, you're exhausted because you have made yourself the center of the universe. You're trying to be first. You're saying, everybody listen to me. Pay attention to me. Everybody look at me. Everybody trust me. And one of the things this teaches us is you can't be that king and you can't be that savior. There is no more grueling exhaustion to try to put yourself up front and say, look at me. Look at me. Look how good I am. Look at all the things I can do. And look to me. I can solve all of your problems. Some of his parents are doing that with our kids and it's exhausting. Look at me. I can solve all your problems. You can't. You don't need to be that king. You can't be that savior. Some of us are doing that in our roles at work. Look at me. Look how good I am. I can fix the problems. Some of us are doing that in our relationships. Look at me. 
Look to me. There's no more grueling exhaustion. But here's the opposite. There's no more fulfilling exhaustion than to work and climb and crawl and run to the back of the pack and say, don't look at me. You don't even need to see me. You don't even know I'm around. No, you look at Jesus. Don't turn around here and look at me. You look to Jesus. He is first. He is the one who died for your sins. You don't need me. Let me get back here and push you to Jesus. You don't need to see me. All you need to see is Jesus, the one who died for your sins. Notice he continues here. And he took a child and put them, put him in the midst of them. Now he's going to give an object lesson on what this looks like. Calls a child over from the kids table and taking him in his arms he said to them whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives or receives whoever receives me receives not just me but him who sent me now immediately he's telling them what it means to be last what it means to be great and he calls this kid up front now, one of the things about kids around the disciples is they get really irritated at this because they can't surrender their vision of greatness. And he's thinking, Jesus, why would you call that kid in here? Put him back in the kids at the kids table. Why did you bring him in here? They're frustrated and they're irritated. Why do they get irritated with kids? It's because in this culture, kids held no status. And they were to be seen and not heard. They were background noise. And for Jesus to take up time with kids irritated them because they're thinking, no, we're more important. And we should be spending more time with more important people. And yet Jesus over and over gives attention to children. He receives them. He restores them. Even the miracles that we've looked at in Mark, they center around children. And he says here, the one who receives one such child, an insignificant, small in stature child, not even great in number, just this child, one such child receives me. And not just me, the one who sent me. You receive this child, you have fellowship with me, the son and the father. We got to ask the question, who are the kids he's talking about here? Who are the children Jesus is referring to? Because there is a flip here in Jesus' approach to kids. In this episode, Jesus isn't teaching us greatness in children's ministry. That our status in heaven is dependent on serving in kids. Although we will tell you that sometimes. They need help back there, y'all. And he's not saying become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven here. Although he's going to teach us that in a few weeks. No, Jesus is teaching something different here. When Jesus ushered this kid up front and the disciples become irritated and frustrated and they think, what in the world are you doing? And Jesus picks him up and holds them up in front of them. What Jesus is saying is this is who you are. You're a little silly kid. That's who you're going to be in the world. Little embarrassed kids. Little kids who don't want to be the center of attention. You as my disciples are going to go to have, have to go to the back. That means you're going to be embarrassed to get to the front. You'll be like little kids who don't want to be heard. Don't want to be seen. 
This is going to be your role in the world. He says, you're talking about greatness. There's nobody in the world that's going to usher you little kids up front and say, look how great these little kids are. Nobody's going to do that for the disciples. No, you're going to need me to hold you up. You're going to need me to hold you up before the world. That's going to be the ministry you're a part of. You, you're going to be so last, you can't even hold yourself up. I've got to do it. And in a world that prizes power and prestige, we're going to be over at the kids' table. Jesus is saying, I'm tying my kingdom to the least of these in the culture, and that's going to be you. And anyone who believes your message, anyone who receives your message... They get fellowship with the Father and Son. Now notice what John does. The same old thing here. 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus is teaching on humility, being last. And then John, who just seems to be very convicted, the beloved disciple, he goes, I got to confess some sin. I got mad at someone for casting out demons and they weren't a part of our group. But Jesus said, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon after speak evil of me. Now, mighty work actually refers to doing something by the power of the spirit. And it seems to be obvious that this man is preaching the kingdom. And so for whatever reason, however he's doing it, Jesus says, don't stop him. He can't preach the kingdom and hinder the kingdom for the one who is not against us is for us. This man is preaching the kingdom. But the disciples are worried about their brand. And by the way, what happened last week? They couldn't cast out demons. And so they begin seeing someone else casting out demons. And so what goes on in their heart? They're jealous. They're worried about their brand. If we can't do it, nobody should be able to do it. And just as a side note here, is Jesus your only motive? You know when Jesus is your only motive when he begins to do other people use use other people to do things you wish you were doing. You become jealous when God begins to use other churches. You become jealous when God begins to use other ministries when they begin to grow. That that reveals is Jesus your only motive? Do you pray for other ministries? Do you pray for other churches? Do you pray for other campus ministries? That reveals our motive. Then he says this, verse 41, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to me will by no means lose their reward. What's he telling them? Hey, instead of stopping him, you should have walked over and given him some water. You should have said, keep going. Keep preaching the gospel. Now, water here is an insignificant task. Giving someone a cup of water is extremely insignificant. It, in their mind, what Jesus is saying, that's not demon casting. That's not demon slaying. Giving someone a cup of cold water, that's an insignificant task. And when you receive a cup of cold water, that's an insignificant honor. And so you're going to be doing insignificant tasks and receiving insignificant honors. Why? Because you belong to Christ. Because you're preaching the gospel. 
But in these insignificant tasks and insignificant honors, at the end of the day, the kingdom is your reward. See, remember he talked about the Pharisees? They like to make much of what they do before men, and Jesus said they get their reward. Men think a lot of them. But you'll be involved in insignificant tasks, getting insignificant honors, but the kingdom is still your reward, no matter your task. Now, what has Jesus taught us here in this last section? It's this. We are insignificant people with insignificant tasks, and we will receive insignificant honor from men. Sometimes we will be demon slaying, but most of the time we will be the water boys. And if Jesus is your only goal, the name of Jesus, it doesn't matter to you. John, it ain't going to matter. John, chill. The guy was casting out demons. There's going to be days, John, where you're just handing out water. Are you going to be okay with that? Or do you want the laser light show demon casting ministry? Whether it's cups of water or casting out demons, the reward's the same. Sometimes you'll hike into unreached villages. Sometimes you'll hand out Doritos at Access. The reward is the kingdom. And the world's not going to care that much about you either way. You're silly little kids. It's going to be all up to me. And here's the deal. If you make much of Jesus, the world's not going to make much of you. It's not. There are situations where I'm having conversations with businessmen or people who have a lot of influence and they don't know what I do. And, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy and I can carry on a conversation. And people begin to look at me. Hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's talking about the economy. He's talking about world events. Hey, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, wow. I can't believe I was even listening to this idiot. You know how often that happens to me? Or let me tell you about Jesus. What? What do you do for a living? Oh, you're a pastor of that church in the warehouse? You don't have any parking? Parking on gravel? And hay? In the gravel? You make much of Jesus, the world's not going to make much of you. And at the end of the day, we're not that smart. And some of you are depressed because you want to be more. And some of you are at points in your life where you expected more from life. And you're just a little kid. And you're just embarrassed. You thought you would have more money. You thought you would have a different job. You thought you would have more recognition. You even thought, in some sense, you would have done more for Jesus. Something more spectacular for Jesus at this point. I got some good news for you today. If you feel insignificant in this moment, you're in the best place you could ever be in the kingdom. You're right where God wants you to be. You're right there. Embrace it. Embrace the insignificance. Embrace the insignificant task. Reject any significant honor and embrace it. 
Embrace the fact that God is the one holding us up as little embarrassed kids as you clumsily read the track on campus because you are scared to death to share the gospel. And you, you're, you're mumbling and stumbling through the, the, you want to make much of Jesus and you don't, you don't know how. Just remember who you are. You're not Billy Graham. You're a little kid who in that moment, Jesus is holding you up to anybody who would listen. And if they hear and receive the gospel, they get the reward, they get the kingdom. As you step out and you pray with that single mom in the pickup line whose kids are a mess. And they're weeping and you you step out and you pray, pray with them because you want them to know Jesus. Insignificant task. It's not Instagram worthy. That's who we are. As you share the gospel in the factory this week over a pack of stale crackers. Insignificant task by an insignificant person. As we stand around and we talk about Jesus in the same conversation that we talk about losing weight. That's how it happens, guys. We talk about with our neighbor how to make our grass grow better. And then we invite them to church. CNN ain't showing up for that. And by the way, Fox News ain't either. Richmond Register might. Ain't many people reading the Richmond Register around the world. But that's who we are. And here's the deal. Our insignificance is what makes Jesus significant. And you've got to get that. You've got to get that. Insignificant people, insignificant tasks, insignificant honor before the world. But here's the honor. We're silly little kids that Jesus has chosen to hold up. And whoever would listen to us, you know what their reward is? They get to join us over at the kids' table. As we wait for the banquet table.